0: Uh, we have a special guest speaker tonight, uh, Nick Van Roof. I'd Like to invite Nick up. Um, before you get started, would you like to introduce yourself and uh, yeah, sure. where you're from? Sure. Uh My name's Nick Van Roof. I'm uh, Ollie's brother. Oh uh, so lucky him. Um, I'm a pastor as well of the young adults community as well in the Hills, Aubrey Baptist, um, and yeah, that's what I do. Well, I'll let you get on with preaching first. Thank you. you. (laughs) It's great to be here. I should have also said I did, I was part of this community um, four years ago, until two years ago, then when I got the call uh, to Hills, like literally a phone call, um, (laughs) the senior pastor called me and went from there. Um, so always be sceptical when people uh, call you. My um, <laughs> uh, Ollie um, uh, spoke to me about coming in to talk about grief. I think it's so good that you're making the space to talk about this here. To talk about things like grief and mental health and anxiety. and uh, The church needs more discussion and dialogue on these kind of things. Uh, an open place to, to bring what we are grieving about and to work through it and to deal with it. So I'm really, uh, really, really privileged to share a little bit of my story and share from uh, what was read just before on grief. And uh, to do that, I want to tell you about my, to start that, I want to tell you about my son No, I've got two kids, uh, Josh, who's three and a half, And Noah who's six months now Josh was um, one of those babies who he's absolutely like loving to bits but gosh he was hard Um, I haven't had a full night's sleep for three years a lot of crying a lot of of issues early on so Josh he's, he's just one of those babies they exist really really tough
1: Noah came along
0: and he was such a happy little kid and like for the first week he was, all, he was almost sleeping through in the first week and you'd put him down and he'd smile at you and be happy and be content just sitting there smiling and enjoying life it was, it was great compared to our previous experience and we don't really tell many people about this because to get a child like this is such a dream but then a few weeks to, uh, two weeks um into his life Uh, he started uh, squeaking and uh, a speech therapist friend of ours uh, heard that and said you guys should get that checked out and we did we went to a doctor and turns out uh, Noah had breathing issues and that sound he was making was very cute is actually him struggling to breathe and so uh, what we discovered is he's got floppy airways so the, the, the connection between the larynx and the sogus was compromised and he couldn't uh, he had to really struggle to breathe and also meant that uh, he couldn't drink properly so uh, so what it meant for us is a whole heap of hospital visits trying to figure out what was going on because there was a lot of unknown, uh, questions there was a stage where he was going to go in for surgery um, but we did that uh, he went in and then he went under and The surgeon went in to to do the surgery, found that what he expected to be wrong wasn't wrong. So that was great that it wasn't that thing, but then what else is causing all this stuff? And so it just led in this time of confusion, a time of uh, worry and concern, and a time of grief. Uh, Because this is not what we expected. This is not what we signed up for. This is not how things were meant to be. A small child struggling, a, a, struggling to breathe. Now I should also say that um, uh, what he has, is malaysia is something not heaps common, but it's common enough, and he will grow out of it. Um, and he's got uh, oxygen tubes, it's constantly connected to an oxygen tank to help him get the oxygen he needs. He's also got a nasogastric gastric tube, so we feed him uh, straight up through his nose into his belly. Um, which in some ways is really convenient because we could take it for a walk and feed and no other mother could do that. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, So there's, there's hope and a resolution inside. But it's still uh, challenging, still hard. and still grieved because it's that feeling of this is not how things are meant to be. Illness, suffering, death. This is not how things are meant to be. Now, this is our story of grief. And gosh, we've got a lot of other um, other stories too. And I'm sure there's people here who have grieved in ways that I couldn't even imagine, who experienced things far worse than I've ever experienced in, in different ways. And all of our stories are just that, our stories. And all of our grief is our grief, is our own. And I want to turn to uh, a story of grief in the Bible, which is Lamentations. And uh, that was read uh, for us just before. And it's quite a challenging book to read. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to explain everything in there. You'll have to go do that work yourself. But I just want to draw out from it understanding what, what, it, what does it say about grief? And I do want to clarify that, that uh, Lamentations isn't a, uh, a textbook or a, a workbook on how to grieve, but it's a record of Israel's grief. Now, I want to, before we jump into it, I think it's helpful to know the context of the book. And uh, the context is written by, uh, well, some people say it's written by Jeremiah, who was an uh, Old Testament prophet of the people of Israel. The people of Israel were God's own people. He'd chosen for himself, uh, and he put them in a a land that was their land. And and he uh, set up uh, the city of Jerusalem and the temple in the center of the city, and that's where God dwelled. And he had a special relationship with his people uh, called a covenant. And And the covenant was that they would be his people. He would bless them, and if they obeyed him, trust him, and not turn away to other gods, then he'd bless them and they would be his people. But is that the story of the Old Testament? Is that what happened? No, Israel weren't faithful. They did turn to other gods. They did disobey God. And because of that, uh, God, God does wait patiently and he gives them chances. But then finally, they're exiled. Jerusalem is destroyed and his people are taken away from their land and exiled. And it's a really grim place. And that's the context that uh, Lamentations is written. So I've got up here a diagram of Israel's history uh, where uh, creation, fall, patriarchs, exodus and promise, like kings and temple. And then the kingdom split. And, there's also, and the northern kingdom is destroyed. The southern kingdom, Judah, is exiled to Babylon. And that's the context. That's where Lamentations is written. In this moment in the Israelite history where they've been exiled. They're away from God's place. They're away from God. And I, I share this, this context because we need to remember that when, as we read Lamentations, it's not our situation or our experience it's talking about. It's talking about the Israelite experience. And so we don't just take it and apply it to ourselves. But what it does do, it teaches us about their relationship with God and does teach us about God. And it's a book, it doesn't have a lot of answers answers, and gosh, it raises a whole heap of questions. But what I want to look at and draw out in the next uh, few minutes is what's the point of grief? What's the place of grief? And what's the purpose of grief? What's the point? What's the place? What's the purpose? And who doesn't love some good alliterations? So what's the point of grief? Well, let's let's just have a quick read again of uh, the first uh, 11 verses of Lamentations. How lonely sits the city that was so full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her ex- enemies. How lonely sits the city. Uh, I wonder um, if you can relate to that comment, how lonely sits the city. Oh, this past year, I think we've, we've got a little bit of that experience where cities, which is the hustle and bustle of business, yet with the global pandemic, uh, the city suddenly becomes empty. I wonder if any essential workers here actually went driving through the city uh, during those times. How barren it was, how empty. And all that hope and promise and potential of a city is gone. Brought to its knees with a disease. And uh, Lamentations, in the, first, uh, in, in the verses here, it talks about Jerusalem as a city, brought to its knees. Not by disease, but by the armies, Babylon, Assyria, coming in and decimating Jerusalem. He goes on, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she suffers herself bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captive before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer, that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her afflictions and mournings, all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there were none to help her, her foes gloat over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her. For they had seen her negative. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took, oh, took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She is no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction. For the enemy has triumphed. Before the narrator had been speaking. But now... Jerusalem herself call, calls out, O oh Lord, behold my affliction. The enemy is trying. The enemy has stretched out his hands all over her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter a sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All the people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasure for food to revive their strength. Jerusalem speaks again, Look, O oh Lord, and see, for I am despised. All these imagery used to describe Jerusalem's grief, the Israelites' grief, the roads destroyed, and, and the, uh, um, uh, the, the nakedness of Jerusalem exposed, and the enemies triumphing. But this is God's people, and yet the enemies are winning. The, the Israelites are lamenting the fall of Jerusalem, or the fall of Zion is another term used for it. And there's a special significance of why it's such a big deal that Jerusalem has fallen. Such significance. Because like I mentioned before, Jerusalem was the city of the Israelite people. And at the center of the city was the temple. And what did the temple represent for the Israelite people? The presence of God. The temple represented the presence of God. But the Babylonians have come in and, and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and even, and, and taken the Israelite people away from Jerusalem, away into exile. So at the heart of what the, the Israelites are lamenting, are grieving, is being separated from God. What they're lamenting is God abandoning his people, their suffering, their experience is a symptom of their separation from God. They call out uh, for help, but there is no one to help them. Help them. We see this in the, in the later part of the text as well, which I won't read all of it. But in verse 15, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my own man. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I will. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, and there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbor should be his foe. Jerusalem has become a th- filthy thing among them. The Lord has afflicted suffering on Jerusalem. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in their midst. And Zion reaches out her hand for comfort. But there's no one to take it. There's no comfort for Israel. And just think, when a child is hurt or, uh, or you know, Scrape their knee? If, if Josh, my son, scrapes his knee or gets hurt in some way, what, what is the one thing that he needs? And it's not a band-aid. It's a huddle. It's a cuddle. Jerusalem is in incredible pain and suffering in this moment, and they cry out. But where is God? They're separated from Him. And why, why have they experienced this? Why this separation from God? If you flip over to Lamentations 2, which again I won't go into. But just the first two verses. It's because the Lord's angry. He's angry at them. Verse verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the days of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down the ground to dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. God is angry at his people because they broke his covenant. They sinned against him. And the the Israelites acknowledge this. They admit that they're they're the reason that this is all that happened. Verse 1, verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore she become filthy. And then verse 14, my my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands they were fastened together. Um, And then verse 18, for the Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. That special relationship that God had with his people. The Israelites turned away from that. They rejected that. They turned to other gods. And so God handed them over to the other nations. 2 verse 17. It says the Lord has done what he proposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalt the mighty foes. They're suffering because they're separated from God. They're separated from God because of their sin. Their rejection of it. They're turning away to other things. And Jerusalem, the Israelites are lamenting. They're crying out to God for the suffering they're experiencing. And look, this is hard to read. To hear about God's anger, and to hear about suffering. So just for a moment, I want to ask the question, well, how can a loving God be angry and treat his people so harshly? It doesn't sound like the loving God that we sing songs about. It doesn't sound like the loving God that we read about in the New Testament, in other parts of the world. One important, really, really, really important thing to remember is that God does not get angry the same way you or I get angry. It's not uh, losing control, but being in control. Uh, one scholar said it this way, God's anger is never explosive, unreasonable, or unexplained. It is rather his firm expression of real displeasure with our wickedness and sin. Even in God it's never a force or a ruling passion. It doesn't take over him. Rather, it's an instrument of his will. And his anger is not thereby shut off sorry, and his anger has not thereby shut off his compassion towards us. That is to say, his anger is not in competition with his love. In fact, his anger is a tool of love. Because the opposite of love is not anger and wrath. The opposite of love is indifference. If God were to do nothing. And God is angry at these Israelite people that they might listen. They might repent. They might return to Him. The Israelites are grieved because they're suffering. They suffer because they've been separated from God. They're separated because of their sin. And, and, and you think of... Yourself in their position. They are God's people and they're meant to be with him in Jerusalem and yet they're separated. They've been defeated. They've been exiled. Things are not as they should be for the Israelite people. And that's the point of Ruth. It shows us that things are not as they're meant to be. Things are not as they're meant to be. There's a longing that comes in the book of Lamentations. There's a longing of how long is this going to go on for? How, is gonna, how long is going to God allow this to happen? When is he going to come and save us? When is he going to come and change this? Before I kind of answer that question, I want to reflect on what the, the book of Lamentations tells us about the place of grief. The place of grief in the life of God's people. Because this is, this is a very important book that raises a lot of really big questions and it almost speaks accusationally against God for how he's treated these white people. And this is a book that's considered scripture, that's considered God's word. So all this shows us that, that there needs to be a place for grief, a place for silence, and a place for tears. I love that we had that um, breath prayer before to provide us a, a time and place and space and techniques of uh, dealing with our grief and anxiety. Lamentations 2, verse 10 says, The elders of Daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They sprinkle with dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. The, the book of Lamentations provides a space for the Israelite people to lament, to grieve. And where is that space for us? Where is that space for us to come and admit, hey, things are not as they should be. I'm really struggling with this in my life, or I find it so hard that this change has happened, or when people pass away, or we're struggling with illness, or we just don't understand why God is doing what he's doing or not doing something for us. Where's the space to raise those questions? To talk about them, to To ask for help in them? One of the things I think we learn from the book of Lamentations is that God can take questions. God can take our accusations. It's not like we're going to ask a question and stump God. You know, oh, I didn't of that. So I think as, as Christian people, as the people of God, as, as his church, we shouldn't be afraid of questions. We should invite it and actually start talking to each other. We should take off our masks figuratively, figuratively. Take off our masks of pretending everything is okay. Because we know it's not. Things are not as they should be. it's a great question of what's what's God going to do about that? For the Israelite people, they've been exiled. What's God going to do about that? What's God going to do about my pain? My situation? My hurt? My sin? So for the Israelites, what are they going to do with their grief, where is their hope in this book? And it's not heaps, and you can almost miss it, but there's something very significant about the book of Lamentations. That I want to uh, you know, teach you, teach you for a minute is um, how the book is structured is really, really, really interesting. So, every uh, chapter except for the last is an acrostic poem. So in the Hebrew it begins first with the letter A and B and C or the Hebrew corresponding. But as you see, the, the third book is three times as long. And instead of going ABC, it goes AAA CCC. A, A, B, 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 C, C. And in, in English poetry, in English writing generally, you save the climax, the big big epic finale to the end. It's kind of what I'm doing tonight. But in Hebrew poetry, the big climax is in the middle. And so what is this big climax? What is the central place undergirding the whole uh, lament in the book? It comes in Lamentations 3, 19 through to 24. which talks of God's character. So in the chaos and the uncontrollability of of life, the Israelites ground themselves on the constant character of God. The, the, The Israelites say this, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. Now if grief reminds us and tells us and shows us that things are not as they're meant to be, that's the point of grief. The purpose of grief is to turn our eyes to the ones who can make it right. If grief is lamenting loss and change and hardship and trouble, then we need to ground ourselves in the one who will never change, who is always constant, who holds us secure. That's what the Israelites did. And our grief and while our experience doesn't determine God's character, then what we think and feel and see happening around us, then for tells us what God is like, or what other people say, or what culture imposes in on us, that doesn't determine God's character. God is who He is. And He is loving, He is merciful, He is faithful. And so the Israelite would say, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. And what that means is, is the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is the thing that I long for. The Lord is the thing that I hold most dear. Because what the Israelites were lamenting is not the loss of a place or a city or a building. They are lamenting their separation from God. But it, they knew, even in exile, even away from the place where, where God dwelt, they knew that the Lord is their portion. And so they desired not, not the things that they grieving to be changed, but that, that they desired God himself, his presence, his purpose, his peace. And in my experience in, in ministry, which is not actually that long, but I'm sure others would confirm this. Is that uh, large experiences of suffering or intense grief kind of sends people into one of two responses. And the first is that they, for talking about Christians, that is, a Christian who experiences a significant amount of grief, it pushes them away from God. They wrestle with those questions and doubt God's character, and turn to other things to fill that void and to find peace and hope. But for other people who experience an intense amount of grief, it draws them closer to God. And it grows their intimacy with God. Uh, and I, I believe that's because they realize that in everything that's happening around them, Whatever their experience is, or their situation, or whatever grief they're experiencing, they know that God is the one who remains constant. That His love does not change. That His mercy does not change. That His faithfulness does not change, and will not change. And so, instead of what they're grieving their situation, they turn their heart to God. God becomes their portion. And so they grow in faith, they grow in intimacy with Jesus. Suffering, as hard as it might be, can actually be used to grow us, to lead us to the heart of God who loves us so dearly. (coughs) The purpose of grief is to turn our hearts to the one who is constant. And so whatever we might be grieving, whatever situation we might be going through, pray that we would want God more, that we desire God more. And look, God's presence, you know, often how we hear, I just don't feel His presence. I just don't see Him. I just don't feel Him. I think reading Lamentations, you'd agree that the Israelites didn't feel God's presence. In fact, they felt quite disconnected from Him. But they knew that God's character remained constant the, that God was their portion so the only hope in grief whatever situation we might find ourselves the only hope I have for my son is you know he'll grow out of this but there will be other challenges there'll be other trials there will be other moments of grief the only source of hope that I can have truly is, is one that would reconnect me with God. Because if, if all suffering, not each individual act of suffering is a result of a specific sin, but all suffering is a result of our separation from God. And the whole world groans under the curse of sin, under what our selfishness and our brokenness has caused. The only hope we have is if God were to come and save us and restore us. For the Israelite people, they were returned from exile. There their grief ended. But it still wasn't quite right. There was more to the story. Then God came down in, in the form of Jesus. And he, he lived among God's people. We think about the presence of God and and and. And then he's like, people like, God was with them in human form, in Jesus. He was there. He ate with them. He walked around with them. He taught them. But then they killed him. And the, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, hanging on a cross. And he was buried dead in a grave. Can you imagine yourselves in the disciples' feet in that that Easter Saturday, that day after Jesus' death? He was their Messiah, but he's dead. He came to save them, but he couldn't even save himself. In that moment, there was no hope. Things were not how they were meant to be. But then the next day, Jesus rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. And with him brought life and healing and restoration and new life for anyone who would trust in him. And he's ascended to heaven. And we can all agree the world is not as it should be. Grief shows us that there's, there's something more. There's something wrong with this world. And there will be a day when Jesus will return and he will make everything right. And he will bring... Those who trust in him into his house, into his presence. And I love uh, the book of Revelation. Gosh, that's another hard book to read, but the imagery, and it's not even imagery, but realism at the end, when it talks about what is the final destination for those who love Jesus? What are, what's the final place? What's the purpose? What's the end goal of life? And it says in Revelation 21, and I saw a new heavens, a new earth, first of heaven and first of the paths where the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. The goal of all humanity is that we would be his people and God will be our God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Grief reminds us that things are not as they should be. But I hope and pray that in those moments it will also lift our eyes to the one who will make everything right. the Israelites lamented, they cried out, and they grounded themselves on the character of God, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness. And where we see that most clearly displayed is Jesus giving his life for us on the cross that that which separates us from God might be forgiven and we would be restore. Let's pray together as we begin to wrap up. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us breathe well. You'd help us breathe real. That we'd be honest with what we're struggling with. That we'd be okay with the fact that we're not okay. That we wouldn't Put up a facade of everything going well, but in this community here, that we be honest and open and have a place to, to acknowledge and, and admit that things are not as they should be, that we're struggling, that we're dealing with with really deep, hard, difficult things, that we're broken, that we're hurting. And God, I pray that it wouldn't just be grief for for no purpose. That We'd actually have hope in that. And our hope would be found in Jesus. And the hope that we have that he will come back and restore all things. But we look forward to that day. And gosh, in the meantime, it's going to be hard and we're going to have lots of questions and we're going to have lots of challenges. But Lord, we pray you would help us persevere through that. Then we help each other persevere through that. And through all of it, Lord. That you would remain faithful to us, we would be faithful to you. Bring you glory, even in the moments of grief and hardship and pain. We all this in Jesus' name. Amen.